feast of Sukkot, in case you were wondering what that was when you walked in, that is a sukkah. That is part of the celebration of the feast of Sukkot, which is the last, the seventh feast in um, the seven feasts that we find in Leviticus chapter 23. And we recognize those because uh, they are, it's one of the pilgrimage feasts. Um, what I mean by that is if you go back just to our passage that we studied last week, God in Leviticus 23 and in other passages like the one we looked at last week, God tells them that there are seven feasts, but there are three that are pilgrimage feasts. In other words, they have to go to where he is, come to him. And so when, when they settle into the promised land and they establish the temple, they have to go back to the temple, go to Jerusalem for these three feasts. And that's something the Jews would look forward to each year, those who could make that travel. And if you were poorer and, and further away, you would look forward to making that pilgrimage at least once in your life. And what a celebration it would be when you go into Jerusalem and you see things like that. Now, that one's not typical. That one's a little bit more ornate and pretty. Uh, the typical sukkah is not very good looking because it's like, it's not supposed to be. Uh, matter of fact, there are like rules around it. If you get into it a little more, everything in it has to be organic. It can't have a roof that you can't see the stars through. So in other words, there's gaping holes in it so that you can see the stars. Um, and a gust of wind should blow it down. Okay, so in other words, it shouldn't be so sturdy that it can hold up to a, a constant wind. The reason is it's a picture of us. It's a picture of our lives. Number one, we are, we are finite. We are um, not as strong as we think we are. And you know the tent that we live in, these bodies, Paul calls them, are wasting away. Uh, also, the picture of it is the reason you have to have slats in it or be able to see through is because you're to be reminded of the promise that God made to Abraham, which is, I'm going to give you as many descendants as there are stars in the sky. So as you would spend this week out in your sukkah, and they literally would spend their week out there. In other words, you might have had a permanent house by then, maybe in the promised land, but you went out for this week and you slept in your sukkah. And it reminded you that God in the wilderness came and dwelt among you in his tent while you were also dwelling in a tent. He came in among you. So as a reminder of God's faithfulness in the wilderness, and we also talked about how the seven feasts are actually foreshadowings of what is to come. And the seventh one, obviously, is a picture of the kingdom of God finally coming in its fullness, in its totality. And that's what we think about. God will come again and dwell with us. We will be his people. He is our God. He will establish his kingdom. And we look forward to that. So every year during the Feast of Sukkot, we remind ourselves. And again, it's an opportunity to orient your life around God, to remind us, got these waypoints throughout the year to bring us back to what's really important. And that really brings us to this section of scripture. I mean, again, remember Moses has been up on the mountain. He's been receiving these second commandments, uh, not different than the first one, but there is an addition to. So he got the original ones that were back in chapter 20, and he's got some extra instructions about the feast or some of the things he talks about and some other regulations. And they're basically, if you think about it, further stipulations or a way that you live out those first 10. So the first 10 are kind of general, if you think about it. Don't steal. Okay, well, what does that mean, don't steal? Uh, what if I take a pen from the bank? Is that stealing or is it just something significant? Is there a certain value of stealing? What do I do to fix that? If I have stolen something, how do I right the wrong? So what you find is the rest of the law of Moses begins to give you examples of how the original 10 are to be lived out. And you see a part of that with the text that we studied last week. But now it's time for Moses to come down the mountain. He had received the law of God again. He has these two stone tablets now that he's bringing down. And 
And not only that, you remember he experienced the presence of God. The scripture literally tells us that he was up there for 40 days and 40 nights, and it tells us that he did not eat anything and he did not drink anything. He didn't drink any water for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, that's ridiculous. There's no way that someone could live 40 days and 40 nights without drinking or eating. Now, here's the thing, though. What you're missing is what this is really emphasizing, and it's emphasizing the fact that it's not food and water that keeps you alive. It's God. God is the author of all those things. So the picture, I think, here that's really being relayed to us and that we have to embrace is God supernaturally sustained Moses. Why? Because Moses was pursuing him. Jesus even said at one time, he was like, man, I'm tired and I'm thirsty and he sat down at a well and he had this conversation with this woman at the well. Remember the Samaritan woman? And then when the disciples got back with the food, they're like, Jesus, here's your food. He goes, I'm not hungry anymore. What, what do you mean you're not hungry anymore? And Jesus said, I have food that you don't know of. Now, did Jesus have like a Snickers in his pocket or something like that, that he was like snuck out while they were gone? No, that's not the case. What he's saying is there is a way that we are super naturally provided for and sustained. And it is not through our provisions, through food and physical manifestations of it. It is the spiritual aspect of who we are. You see, our bodies, our physical drives us to feed that physical. But we have to at some point realize that we are not physical beings learning how to be spiritual. We're spiritual beings learning how to live in the physical. And if you don't get that right, the physical dominates. I've, I've started this practice in my life, which I was never good at before, but I'm, I'm getting better at it now, and that is the discipline of fasting. And I, I've gotten in this routine of fasting. I'm not going to go into all of what I do, but uh, I, I do, I'll do it now for like every month. I'll do it for multiple days. So I'll do it for like four days. Every third month, I'll do four days in a row. And I know that if you're anything like me, you're like, that is ridiculous. There's no way I could ever do that. And that's exactly what I thought. But what I learned was a lot of times what your body is saying that you need is not actually what you need. And you don't need it. And the spiritual implications of that have been profound for me. Because there's so many things that my heart tells me that I need. But when I focus in on my relationship with God, what I realize is I don't really need those things. I mean, like, there's things that I think I need to be me. In other words, to be the individual that I am, to be who I want you to think that I am. Like, maybe rugged, and so I'm gonna drive a Jeep, so I need a Jeep, you know? I need a Jeep, and I can take the doors off, and I can look tough, and big wheels on it. That, that's something maybe I've projected in my mind, and I want you to think that, but the reality is when I dig into it, it's like, that's really not who I am. I don't have to be that person. That's not where I get my identity. And I know that's a silly illustration of it, but I think you get the idea is that there's so many things in this life that are temptations for us to embrace as our identity and our self-worth, and they're not really. That's not where we should be finding it. We should be finding it in our relationship with God. So again, there are things that our body, our mind, our heart tell us that we need, and we have to discipline ourselves to say, you know, that's not exactly true. And until you walk through that, the realization doesn't become as powerful. So in our text, 
The first time Moses came down with the law, you remember, was when he got really mad, broke it. Why? Because he came down and he found chaos. He found people laughing, singing, um, feasting, dancing around a golden calf that they had created for themselves as their God that they worship or the way they were going to worship Yahweh. This was their God. And this time is very different. I mean, if you go back to our text and you see, it seems like the people have grown a little bit. In other words, he's still been gone for a while, 40 days, 40 nights, but he comes down and he sees the people eager to know, to learn, to understand. They've learned from that past experience. They've learned from the grace of God and from the justice of God. And so the first time he comes down, rebellion, abandonment, that's what he sees. This time he witnesses expectation, devotion, anticipation, but it also gives us a little bit more additional information. Let's look at verse 29. So when Moses came down from the Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Now, verse 29 tells us about this phenomenal experience that impacted the appearance of Moses. A couple of the commentaries I read made a note of, of the word shown here. They mentioned that in the Septuagint, it's actually translated a little different. It's actually translated, the skin of his face sent out horns. Okay? Now, the reason is because when you translate it from the Hebrew, that's the most literal that you can translate it. The skin of his face sent out horns. Now, when Jerome translated into Latin, he did it the same way. He brought the same idea into it. The skin of his face had these horns, shown out horns. Um, the reason is, now it was kind of funny because if you actually go back to that time period, uh, the Enlightenment, there, there were paintings that came from that time period. If you go and look at it, if you go in any of the, like, the fancy museums that have the masterpieces of the world, you'll, I think it was even Michelangelo made, uh, painted a picture of this very event, and Moses has horns. And it's kind of like, like weird, because you're like, I thought Moses was a good guy, and I thought he was on our side. And because he's got these little horns, it looks like a devil. And that's where they got it from, because they read the text, and they painted literally what they had. But that's not what the Hebrew really means. It means that light was coming out of him, like horns would come out of your head. Okay? So the difference is, how many of y'all, if you're my age or older, you remember the glow worm, right? Now, I was way too manly to have a glow worm, but I did see the commercials. All right, so the little glowworm is, you know, you would sleep with it. You remember that? It was like a little nightlight, but it was also like a, a stuffed animal. So you'd squeeze that thing at night, and his little head would glow just a little bit, and then after a while, it would just slowly go off, you know, and it would kind of let you just kind of go back to sleep and create some security. Well, that's not, that picture of just kind of a little amber glow in the night is not what this passage is talking about. It's talking about like a floodlight, that pierces the darkness. You turn that thing on and you're doing like this, okay? That's what it means. Light was coming out of his skin, not just radiating, but coming out, shooting out like a floodlight. That's the picture, which is why when we get a little bit further, we understand why the rest of them were freaked out by this a little bit, okay? It wasn't just like he was a little shiny, that he was glowing a little bit. It was 
a little bit intimidating what was coming out of his face. It was light just shooting out, kind of like a little uh, different passage we'll look at a little a little later, um, Jesus, when he's transfigured, it says that he, his face shine like the sun. Well, think about the difference in the way the sun shines and the moon shines. The moon is just reflecting light. So the moon in the night glows. And you can stand there and you can stare at that moon all night long if you want to. You can watch it go across the sky. You can Even on a full moon, okay, those bright harvest nights, you can sit there and you can look at that and daydream and Think about you know, the little man that keeps the cheese up there or whatever it is that, that people say about it. But you cannot do that with the sun. You cannot stand out there and just stare at the sun all day long. You will burn your eyes out. Why? There's a difference in something that reflects and something that contains and is shooting out light. Okay, That's the difference of what we find here. Now, look at verse 30 and that I mean, verse 29, that, that understanding of verse 29 really makes 30 make sense. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. So I'm not just talking about this brother was lit up a little bit. We're talking about he was intimidating, like it was bright. And they were even trying to figure out who, you know, is this Moses and, and what in the world has happened to him? And they were beginning to back up off of him because they were afraid of him. And it actually took Moses to kind of calm them down and invite them to come back and to listen to him because they were so intimidated. They were literally running away. And the question we have to ask is this, why was Moses shining? And I think the obvious answer that we would all say is, well, I mean, he was shining because he was in the presence of God, right? The only problem with that is the text in Exodus actually tells us that he's been in the presence of God before. There was a time when he was at the burning bush. He was in the presence of God, but it doesn't say anything about him shining. Matter of fact, he's already been up on the mountain once and received the Ten Commandments one time, and he was up there for a long period of time. And it doesn't say anything about him coming down and radiating and, and shining forth this glory. So what's different about this time than all the other times that he was in the presence of God? He didn't manifest this light. I think the answer to that is found in our previous text, where Moses is learning to be what God needs him to be and has brought him along to be, and that is the mediator. To be a mediator, you have to understand the parties that you're mediating. You gotta understand the people on this side, and you gotta understand the people on this side, okay? And in this case, Moses is mediating God to the people and the people to God. He represents God to the people in the sense that he tells them everything that God told him. And then he turns around and he represents the people to God. So we've seen him stand in, in, in light of them and behalf of them when they've sinned and saying, God, don't destroy them or, or God, please still come among them or God, forgive them. So he's the one that goes in between. But to go in between, you've got to understand both parties. And what we saw in the last few texts was Moses digging deeper into his relationship with God. We even see him make this bold request, God, I want to see your glory. And of course, in that passage, we saw where God said, well, you, you, 
you can't see my glory. You can't see my full glory. You would never make it. It would destroy you. You wouldn't live. But I tell you what, Moses, because you made that request, I'm going to honor that request because you found favor in my sight. And he said, I am going to put you in the cleft of a rock and I'm going to hide you away with my hand. And then I'm going to walk past you. And then I'm going to move my hand away and I'm going to let you see my back. Now, again, we call those anthropomorphic images. Those are, God doesn't have a hand. He doesn't have a back. He doesn't have a face, but those are images that we understand. And so we can relate to them, right? But what it essentially means is this, God took Moses, put him in the cleft of a rock, hid Moses in the cleft of the rock, passed by, then exposed Moses to where he just was, but isn't anymore. That's what it means by saying, I'll let you see my back. In other words, I'll let you see where I just was, but I'm not there anymore because if I was there, it would kill you to see me. And that's enough to blow your mind right there. Again, I want to remind you of what we learned about that passage. What was it? God in that passage protects Moses from God. God protects Moses from God. He puts him in the cleft of the rock, hides him away, walks past, and then lets him see where he just was. This is God honoring Moses' request, but also protecting Moses from the full onslaught of what that request would mean if he answered it fully. Aren't you glad God does that? Aren't you glad that God, when you pray, doesn't answer your prayers exactly the way you intended them to be answered? Because you don't know what you're asking for. And I could be, you know, God, I want to see your glory. I want to know you. God says, you know what? You're not ready to know me that way yet, but I'll tell you what, I'll take you that next step and it's going to look like this. Or God, man, I really need this. I really, I need you to come through. You don't want that. And let me just tell you, you don't want that. I know you think you want that, but you don't want that. And so a part of our growth in our relationship with God is learning to trust him. And, and the beauty of it is God protects us along the way. God protects us from God. <laughs> and, and the beauty is this is a foreshadowing of the gospel because that's what God did through Jesus is he protected us from himself. When Jesus came in the form of man, there is God cloaking himself in flesh and blood. He was 100% God, 100% man. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus was a better Moses. Why? Because he was a better mediator. Why? Because he understood both parties perfectly. He was 100% man. He was 100% God. Man, he knew how to represent the people to God. The Bible says that he was touched by our infirmities and our weaknesses. It says that he experienced temptation like we did, except without sin. He knows what it's like to be human, but he also knows what it's like to be God. And so as he turns to his human people, he begins to tell them stories parables, because he knows that they won't fully understand what he knows about heaven. So he tells them in language that they can understand and relate to and tells them just enough to whet their appetite of understanding what the kingdom of God is. Jesus is this beautiful mediator. And when Jesus dies on the cross and is buried and rises from the dead, you know what that is? God protecting us from himself. Because God really wants to know us and he wants us to know him, but that can't happen in our sinful nature. So God had to pay the penalty of that sin. When Jesus died, 
and paid the penalty of our sin, God protected us from himself. Now we can come into the presence of God and we can know him and we can grow in a relationship. Why? Because we have the perfect mediator. All of this is foreshadowed right here in this passage. When Moses wanted to see the glory of God and God honored that, I think what God was honoring was saying, Moses, the things that you're asking for now are worthy of a response. I can't give you what you're asking for because you're not ready for that yet, but I'm gonna give you a taste of that. And that right there is going to help you to understand me in a more full way. I want us to go back to the passage that we actually studied last week, and I want you to see a couple of things that I think are foundational to understanding this last passage. First of all, go back to verse six. It says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. Again, this is when he put him in the cleft of the rock, hid him away, passed by. And, and if you remember, you go back a little further, when, God, when Moses made that request, that request was fulfilled when he went up on the mountain and received the law for the second time. So all that happened at the same time. So when Moses comes down, not only has he received the law, that was also when he experienced the fullness of, of, of that experience of God passing by and him seeing where God was, okay? That's why he comes down different this time. Now again, as the Lord is passing by, he told him before, I'm gonna pass by and I'm gonna speak my name. So that's how we know this is that experience because God passes before him and speaks his name. Look at verse six. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, this is beautiful here, and I don't want you to miss this. What's going on here is this. The first time God introduces himself is at the burning bush, and all he tells him is, my name is Yahweh. That's it. That's all he shared. This time, he says, my name is Yahweh, and I forgive sins. I forgive iniquity. I forgive transgressions. I am merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, abounding in faithfulness. He's telling him about his character, not just his name, not just who he is, but what that means in a relationship with him. He's telling you about what he is really good at. And God is telling Moses, you know my name, but let me just reveal a little bit more. Now that we've known each other for a while and you, you've wanted to see my glory, and now I want you to know my glory is wrapped up in my characteristics. And if you wanna know what I'm really good at, I'm really good at forgiveness. I'm really good at being merciful. I'm really, really good at not letting my anger control me. I'm really, really faithful. I am steadfast with my love. In other words, my love don't move with emotions, it's steadfast. But also notice how balanced God's character is. He says, but I want you to understand, I don't let the guilty get away without feeling the consequences of their sins. My justice and my mercy are perfectly harmonized in my character. You know why Moses needs to know this? Because he's the mediator. 
he's got to explain who this God is to these people. And he's learning and experienced this himself. Now, not only was this a great revelation about the character of God, it was also meant to help Moses to grow in his own personal understanding of who God is, because until he understands who God is, he's not gonna be able to relate that to the people as a mediator. How is he gonna explain this holy God to these unholy people? God is helping him with this. And apparently, it sinks in, because look at how Moses responds, verse eight. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Now, the word worship there is a powerful word because you have to understand it in its original context, not in our context. When we say we worshiped, we typically mean we sang or we went to a place where someone taught the word and and we listened to it and we took notes or we were part of a worship service. And when we talk about that, we have these ideas of what that means. But I want you to know that the word worship, originally the first time it ever shows up in scripture, is when Abraham is about to sacrifice Isaac. And he says to the people, his entourage that have gone with him up the mountain to sacrifice his son, there's like a traveling crew that he has with him probably to take all the supplies that they need. When they get to that spot where he is ready to build the altar and sacrifice his son, he looks at the people who traveled with him and he said, me and the boy are gonna go a little further and worship. And then we're gonna return to you. So, Worship somehow involves sacrifice, but I want you to understand this too. Worship also understands who God is. If you think about Abraham, he's already been through this really long process of understanding and getting to know God to the point that God said, hey, I'm gonna make you the father of a great nation. He was like, hey, I don't have any children. I don't know how you're gonna do that. God didn't really say anything. He said, well, I guess God needs my help. So he tried to help God out. He created a really bad situation. Finally, God does it in his time to show the miraculous nature of who he is and that provision is based not on science, but on God's provision. And he has this miraculous son that's given to him. And then after he has this miraculous son, he's like, now it makes sense. God says, I want you to sacrifice your son to me. Now it doesn't make sense. But as he's walking, he's like, you know what? Through all these experiences, I've learned something about God. He's faithful. He's good. He's merciful. He's steadfast in his love. And he fulfills his promises. So somehow, even though he's called me to do this, this boy's gonna survive this experience. I don't know if it's gonna be I've sacrificed him and he's gonna raise him back from the dead or if he's just gonna stop me from doing it. I don't know what it is, but all I know is I can trust him. And so the boldness of me and the boy are gonna go and worship over here, and then we're gonna return to you, is Abraham's declaration, God is faithful and good and trustworthy. He's going to fulfill the promise that he made through this promised son that he said is the promised son. When it says Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshiped, it wasn't just that Moses had this experience and so he was reacting. I think it was a revelation. Moses has now understood something about God that he didn't understand before. Look at his response. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. 
For it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. The reason Moses quickly bows his head and worships is he's thinking, oh my goodness, these people need that kind of God. If he's forgiving and loving and steadfast and patient, these people are stiff-necked and stubborn and full of iniquity and full of sin. This is the best God we could possibly have for this group of people. Moses now says, God, come amongst these people because you're exactly what they need. And look what he says. And take us, not just them, us for your inheritance. Now, that doesn't sound like a great inheritance, does it? What'd you get for an inheritance? A stiff-necked people full of iniquity and sin? What did you get? But here's the thing. What Moses is arguing here is this. If that's who you are, nothing would highlight those qualities greater than this group of people. If you want people to see who you are and to know that you are faithful and that you are long-suffering and that you are good, come amongst these people because everyone will see it. It will be demonstrated fully if you come among us. And what an inheritance, because people who will tell these stories for generations will think back and go, what a God they served. How faithful, how long-suffering, how good. You see, the truth of who God is not only enlightened Moses, it was emboldening him and it was equipping him for his role as the mediator. Now, I want to talk about this idea of glory for a moment, coming back to our text. This glory that Moses experienced there on the mountain and that follows him as he comes down. The one thing that we can understand about that glory is that somehow that glory is associated with light. So I want to see your glory. And God lets him experience just a little smidgen, a taste of what that full presence would be like, just a little bit of it. And that somehow is translated to Moses coming down the mountain and radiating light. What does that tell us? God is the source of glory, not Moses. In other words, as you think about that, Moses is not the one who is the source of the light. God is. Because the text goes on and says that the more time Moses spends away from God, not going into the tent of meeting, the light would diminish. And every time he went in and spent time in the presence, the light would come back and it would be there for a while. And the more he was with the people, it would slowly just come. And so he was constantly going through this process. What does that tell us? But yet God is the source of light. And that's true. You know, that's true not only for Moses, but it's true to this whole story. So if you go back to the very beginning in Genesis chapter one, the Bible tells us that the, the earth was in a state of chaos and darkness and God recognized it. And he saw the way that it was and his first response was to step into it. And the way that the scripture explains him stepping into it is he spoke and everything responded to his word. God said, light be, and light was. God spoke and light shot forth and pushed back the darkness. 
That was the beginning of everything. It's the beginning of the whole creative process. Light shooting forth. Who's the source of that light? God, his word. Now, again, we've studied the Gospel of John, and you know the Gospel of John is built on top of the Old Testament. You don't, if you don't understand creation, you don't understand the Exodus, you don't understand the Gospel of John, not fully anyway. John starts off his Gospel. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh, he tells us a little later, a few verses down, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his Yes, the glory of the only begotten of God. And how does he explain that only begotten of God? He said, the world was dark. And into that dark world, God sent the word, the light. The light came into the darkness, but the darkness didn't understand it couldn't comprehend it. John begins to tell us that the gospel begins the same way creation does, that somehow creation was a foreshadowing of what God intended to do to a fuller measure in a spiritual way, that literally it's like our hearts, our minds are dark, are cloaked, are veiled, and God speaks into those dark situations, and light radiates and that's related to us as revelation. In other words, understanding, being, being um, enlightened to who God is. God is the source of all light. Not only do we find him separating light and darkness in the very beginning, but you know Moses isn't the only being that we've ever seen that glows. Angels glow. Did you know that? And glow's not the best word. Angels radiate. You remember the times when they showed up at the resurrection of Jesus and these bright, it was intimidating. There's other times in scripture where an angel shows up and, and people cower and they're even tempted to worship because they are so bright. Why are, have you ever asked yourself, why are angels so bright? Why do they radiate light? Same reason Moses did. They exist in the presence of God and God is the source of all glory and light. Therefore, if they're flying around singing holy, 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 even covering their eyes, they are absorbing that glory of God. So when they show up, unless they're cloaked in some way or another, the glory of God radiates from them, what they've experienced. The splendor of heaven, the book of Revelation tells us that the new heaven and the new earth, and in the, in the new heaven and new earth, there is no darkness. There's no night because God is there and he drives away every shadow. There's not even shadows in heaven because the God of light is so, the, the light of God is so permeating that it doesn't even create shadows. Somehow it, it, evap it kind of envelops everything and shines around things. No darkness. So this is who God is. And Moses was a reflector of God's glory. He, he was the one who brought this glory for the people to experience. He was the mediator. Can you imagine as Moses spends time with God? He's in that situation. And, and as he's spending time with God, he can't help but be transformed by it. And the other thing that we see is that he can't hide it from others. I find it interesting in this passage that Moses had no idea what was going on. 
he was walking down the light and everybody's like, whoa, what's going on? And the scriptures are literally running away. They're like, man, who is this guy? Moses, what, come on, man, we gotta get our sunglasses on. And Moses is like, what are y'all talking about? Why are y'all all running away? Moses didn't realize it. He didn't even know what was happening. And then when he puts it all together, he had to coax them to come back. He had to encourage them say, hey, I promise you're not gonna be, come on back, I've got some things to tell you. I've been in the presence of God. They were very afraid of him. But then again, that's what the glory of God does. You remember Isaiah? even just in a vision of God. He wasn't even in the literal presence of God. It was a vision that God gave him. He said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. And there were angels flying around singing, holy, holy, holy. They were hiding their eyes with two of their wings. They were hiding their feet with two of their wings. And with the other wings, they flew. So they had six wings flying around the throne of God, hiding their face from him because he was so glorious. And what was Isaiah's response? He did exactly what Moses did, dropped his head, and he said, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Isaiah was intimidated. Isaiah was convicted of his sin. Not only was he convicted of his sin, he was convicted of the sin of his entire generation. You see, when the radiating light of God shows up, it manifests and exacerbates our own sin. And we become fully aware of it, that we can't hide it anymore. It's laid bare. And the only thing we're left to do is confess it. Because it's out there and we see it and we can't hide it anymore. That's what the light of God does. It exposes, that's the justice part, but then it begins to heal. The story of Isaiah is the angel flies and takes some coal from the altar and touches it to his lips. Remember, he said, I'm a man of unclean lips. And God says, you've been forgiven and you're restored. And that's where God says, who will we send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, I don't have anything to offer you, but if you just need somebody, here I am. I mean, I thought I was dead, and now all of a sudden I'm forgiven. I mean, I, I saw how unrighteous I was, and now I've been made righteous. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I mean, I don't have anything for you, and you don't need me, but if you just want to use somebody, here I am. Send me. You see, that's what happens is when we understand the fullness of the glory of God and we experience that, it opens us up to what we were created for and what God wants us to do and what he wants us to experience and how he wants us to take that light into the darkness that we're around. Paul experiences the light. Remember when he was on the road persecuting Christians and all of a sudden a bright light shone so much that he became blind for a while knocked him off his horse, changed his life. There was a time that Jesus had a very similar experience to Moses that actually included Moses as well. It's called the transfiguration. Y'all remember that? Transfiguration happened on a mountain and there was Jesus, Elijah, and Moses. And if you think about that, it's pretty cool because you have the Torah, 
the prophets and the gospel all right there together. And they're having this conversation. And some of the, some of the disciples there, James and John, had gone up a little further, Peter, James, and John. They, they had witnessed some of this. They saw it off in the distance. They saw that Moses, and they thought, saw him talking. But what's amazing is when this all happens, Moses isn't the one who's shining with light. Matthew chapter 17, verse 1, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. 